Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Coming to you from the Toby Family Auditorium at the Commonwealth Club, it's week to week, the political roundtable for Thursday, May 23rd, 2019. Um, I'm John Zipperer, your host. I'm sort of rendered speechless by some of what I was watching in the news today, so I'm really (laughs) going to get to our two panelists today as soon as possible. Just briefly, today we're going to talk about the presidential candidates who are going to be flooding San Francisco next week, the abortion bill politics, Congress versus the president, and more. And of course, we'll end our evening together with our our week-to-week live news quiz. Everyone, of course, is welcome at the Commonwealth Club. doesn't matter what your views are, but any opinions that are expressed up here are those solely of the speakers and not of the Commonwealth Club. Now, let's meet our panelists for today. On the far end of the stage is Dan Schnurr. He's a professor at the University of Southern California, Annenberg School of Communications. He's on Twitter at Dan Schnurr. So welcome back, Dan. Next to me is Carla Marinucci. She's a senior writer at Politico California Playbook. She's on Twitter at C. Marinucci. So... You know that Carla's love because they didn't even wait for the introduction to be finished before they started clapping. Carla's back. Okay. Um, and I should note, our third panelist, Dr. Larry Gersten, uh, had to cancel at the last minute. He is a bit under the weather, so we wish him the best, and we look forward to having him back soon. You all know how we do this program. There are question cards throughout the room. Write out some questions. People will deliver them to me, and I'll try to work them into our conversation here tonight. Now, on to our roundtable, and I'm not even going to start with that whole Rose Garden thing. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> Let's go there. Let's start kind of more (laughs) locally, and that is um, next weekend, the final weekend of the month, there's going to be the Democratic, the state Democratic Convention. It's going to take place about a mile from here over, I believe, at Moscone. That's right. And uh, there are going to be a lot of presidential candidates showing up. Um, it's going to attract them like, I guess, a slab of raw beef at a picnic because <laughs> that's flies. I don't know. Uh, so, Carla, so will state daughters and sons, uh, favorite sons and daughters, that is, Eric Swalwell. That's right. Kamala Harris. Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson. How are they going to do with this? Do they, who, who has the, are they going to be the most popular people there or not? Not necessarily. I mean, you can have 14 presidential candidates in town. They're going to be throwing elbows. Uh, there's national media is going to be all over the place here uh, because the California Democratic State Convention is the largest state convention in the country. There's 500 delegates at stake here in California. This is the place where these candidates are going to get to reach the boots on the ground people, the, the most energized people. The, the problem for these candidates is the California Democratic Party is far to the left, probably, of the general electorate. So um, that's where uh, I think Kamala Harris and uh, some of the other candidates are going to have an interesting time because uh, Bernie Sanders is going to be in town. Uh, he's got a very big and energetic following. Uh, Joe Biden is not coming so far. Oh, he's not. Yes. And um, there's there's a lot of what I'm hearing from some of his people out there is that, look, this is Kamala's home turf. Uh, these people are way to the left. They're not exactly a Joe Biden crowd. Remember, this is the same state party that endorsed Kevin DeLeon over Dianne Feinstein. Uh, Feinstein has regularly gotten booed at this thing. Uh, people like Joe Lieberman and John Kerry have gotten booed here. So we're going to see some interesting stuff coming down next week when they're all here. They're not only doing stuff at the at the Moscone Center, they're doing a big move on 
uh, event at the Warfield Theater. Um, and I, I'm going to be interested to watch, uh, you know, how the Bernie people organize, how organized they are, how, how big that contingent is. I'm also going to be interested to watch Pete Buttigieg because I've now covered him a couple of times here in San Francisco, including at the Commonwealth Club. Uh, just a couple of weeks ago, he did a big rally here on Van Ness, a $25 head rally, which, you know, who does that anymore? And there were 1,300 people there. Some of the people at his event were Kamala Harris people, were, were her, like her finance, one of her finance people, Leslie Katz was there, oh. uh, you know, Bevan Dufty uh, was there. And, and I said, you know, what are you, what are you all doing here? And they said, well, we've donated to Pete too. Pete is taking a little bit of the fire from Kamala. So I think, uh, I think it's going to be an interesting thing to watch. And the reason that California is so important is because you all are going to start voting the same week they start voting in Iowa. It really is sort of an early primary. The, the, the primary is March 3rd, but remember, we start voting 30 days before that, and that tracks it right around the same time as the Iowa caucuses. So uh, as much as they think Iowa and New Hampshire think they may be first in the nation, California's up there too, and that's all these campaigns have told me they're watching that they need to have traction in California. They need to have a play here. Uh, but the progressive side of the Democratic Party is going to be a problem yeah, for some of them. I mean, Carla's exactly right, and you can broaden her point. Conventions almost by definition attract the most ideologically extreme members of both parties. It takes a lot more energy and a lot more enthusiasm to take your time to go to a convention center, to put on silly hats and to scream and yell for someone than it takes to fill out a ballot. And so consequently, Democratic conventions tend to be much more progressive than Democratic voters as a whole, just like Republicans. Republican conventions tend to be a lot more conservative. So Biden is making the very, very smart decision. As the designated centrist, maybe not in the race, there's a few others among the 23, but among the designated centrist in the top tier, the worst place in the world for him to be next weekend would be on stage at the Moscone <laughs> Center um, because this is not a crowd that no matter what he tells them would receive him pretty well. Uh, very well. I feel like Kamala Harris faces a real challenge, not just here, but more broadly, given the yeah. positioning that Carla was talking about, the Atlantic magazine last week uh, ran a piece that referred to her as the Jan Brady of the Democratic primary. <laughs> and so for some of your, the younger people in the audience, we should stop and explain who Jan Brady is. I think for some of the younger people, we should explain what a magazine is. But that's a <laughs> conversation for another day. And what, what, what Harris is trying to do, and if she pulls it off, it's masterful, but it's tricky. Running in the, I'm not, I'm progressive, but not quite as progressive as Sanders or Warren Lane is a pretty intricate path to follow. And going forward, you look, her, look, if you look at her candidacy, her best moments by far, and you could argue the yes. best moments, not just for Harris, but for any Democratic candidate, have occurred for her when she has sat on the rostrum of the Senate Judiciary Committee yeah. with Jeff Sessions, with Brett Kavanaugh, with others in front of her. And I think what, 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 what needs to happen for her campaign to return to the stage where it was when she entered the race is to figure out how to move that forcefulness from the committee room to the campaign trail. 
the convention is an opportunity to do it. We'll, we'll see if she does. Lastly, although I agree with Carla on 97 out of 100 things that she says, there is one thing that we disagree on. I don't think the California primary is going to matter even as much as it did four years ago, but we can come up, we can come back to that. <laughs> oh, I'd like to hear more about that at some okay. point, but um, what, let's talk about some of the other 8,000 candidates who are yeah. in the race. I guess we had New York yeah. Mayor Bill, Bill de Blasio. Well, if we do 45 seconds on each, we will run out of time before we give away the prizes. This is one of the reasons Joe Biden isn't coming, by the way. Yeah. Uh, each of these candidates is going to get seven minutes to speak in front of this, this crowd. Um, so it's, pre- it's presidential speed dating. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be crazy to watch. Of course, they're going to all these caucus rooms and doing these parties and so forth yeah. and looking for money while they're here. Uh, you know, Cory Booker's doing a big fundraiser down in L.A. the day before. He's got all kinds of Hollywood stars there. But, but the, the bottom line is, as you said, they're also going to have to discuss some of their issues in front of this very progressive crowd. And remember, Kamala Harris, she got in trouble in the very beginning saying, oh, we may have to do away with the private insurance companies to get Medicare for all, right? That kind of thing, they're going to be asked, Bernie Sanders is going to be asked about, uh, you know, should the Boston bomber, uh, a marathon bomber, uh, be voting in prison? The kind of thing that a lot of more moderate Democratic voters are or maybe cringing at, right? John, so, yeah. I, I know I, I know we have a lot of topics to yeah. cover, sure. but I think it's worth taking an extra minute on this because Carla's making a really important point. And once again, I'd broaden it because to me, and I'll be yeah. very eager to hear your thoughts yeah. on this, Carla, um, the split in the Democratic Party that exists right now is not just a classic ideological liberal versus centrist split. That To me, at least what I observe from the safety of my no party preference perch <laughs> um, <laughs> is that there's sort of a meta question to be resolved in the Democratic primary between now and hopefully next June, but perhaps next July or August, we'll, we'll see. Uh, some of you may remember, if you're Netflix fans, there was a TV show on Netflix a few years ago called Bloodline with Kyle Chandler and with Linda Cardellini. And we decided to watch it because one day I was driving home from campus in Los Angeles and where we live, we see billboards for the TV shows and movies because they think everyone in LA, you know, votes in the Oscars and Emmys. And there was a billboard up for Bloodline and the tagline on it, the tagline on it was, we're not bad people. We just did a bad thing. (laughs) Now that was enough to get me to watch the pilot episode and ended up being a three-year series. And it's great, by the way. So the reason I bring this up is think about this. We're not bad people. We just did a bad thing. I would suggest to you that that is Joe Biden's rationale for candidacy in this race. (laughs) On balance, Biden and others, uh, Booker, uh, Steve Mm. Bullard, Amy Klobuchar and others said, look, we're good people. We as a country, we make mistakes. We uh, we've done bad things in the past. We try to fix them. We're not perfect. But on balance, the trajectory of our country is a positive one. We did something really bad three years ago. Let's fix it. and Let's get back to normal. That's the Biden Klobuchar Booker end of this. The Warren Sanders end of this is much more dramatic. And Sanders himself says this isn't just about replacing Donald Trump. This is about fundamentally remaking our country. And that is either a much more dramatic and expansive or a much more radical and revolutionary approach. I think what Democrats have to decide between now and next year's Mm -hmm. primaries is which of those broader philosophies which has really not that much to do with liberalism or centrism, but which of those broader philosophies seems like a better path forward? Is it a more measured one, whether it's centrist or liberal, or is it a more dramatic one, whether it's from the left or from the center? Yeah, I mean, I think this is, you've got it exactly right. And this is where Kamala Harris has 
a challenge because what what is her lane? As you said, she's been so strong on the Judiciary Committee. By the way, she she picked up, I think, almost a million dollars in uh, fundraising after she made those very strong uh, statements about abortion, the, the uh, Alabama abortion line. I know we're going to discuss that. Uh, so she's had some moments, but at the same time, she's had challenges with uh, these other candidates getting into the race and kind of peeling off uh, some of her voters. So this is this is the issue. I don't think the California primary in any way is a slam dunk for her. I think uh, when you look at the kind of competition she has at, on every level and on every issue, uh, whether it's for African-American voters or women voters or, you know, I mean, she, she's got to craft a campaign that, that keeps her up. Right now, I think she's considered in the top tier. Um, but she's going to have to fight to stay there. Yeah. And, to be fa- and to be fair to her, the reason she's facing these kind of questions is because she entered the race as such an explosive force. No one was asking, why didn't John Hickenlooper take a more forceful position on issue X, <laughs> yeah. Y, and Z? Yeah, yeah, right. Harris, just by the amount of attention yeah. she attracted at the beginning, yeah. therefore gets more scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what do you think about the complaining that some of the supporters of Klobuchar, uh, Gillibrand, uh, and Harris have made about, we're U.S. senators, we're, you know, we, we've got real accomplishments, and why is this mayor of North yeah. West, <laughs> South Bend, Indiana. some town in right. Indiana, <laughs> right. why well, is he getting all this attention and love? Um, but he, on the other hand, he has handled himself very well. In yeah, having, having now talked to him two times, and I mean, He's a very, I've never, I haven't seen a candidate like him since I've been covering this stuff since 1996, which is, um, just comes off as somebody who is not scripted, is unafraid to talk to the media, unlike Kamala Harris sometimes, and some of these other candidates uh, who will blow past you, uh, you know, they don't like doing these press scrums. He doesn't have a problem doing that. Mm-hmm. And he's got a following out there. I think the, the authenticity factor has really connected with a lot of people. I, I was telling you, John, that uh, after his last appearance in San Francisco, the same day that Donald Trump called him Alfred E. Newman, uh, I asked him, you know, what, what do you think of that criticism? And he said, oh, maybe it's a generational thing. I had to Google who Alfred E. Newman was. <laughs> but you know what? I mean, it was a... <laughs> It was a light moment, but it was so perfectly calibrated. It, totally. I, I think yeah. American people, I mean, well, I mean, you guys tell yeah. me. Yeah. It seems to me that we are, we have been watching politicians of both parties add a hair trigger, ready to react and overreact and jump down the other person's throat for so long. It's exhausting. Yeah. And yeah. for someone like Buttigieg, not to dismiss it. I mean, to dismiss it, but in a lighthearted but forceful way. Yeah, no. very refreshing. And and it blew me away that after I posted that video, within 48 hours, it got 2.5 million hits, uh, which which is just a mind blower. Which, what does that tell you? People are watching what this guy is saying in a way they aren't watching a lot of the other candidates. So I'll answer your question, John. How did the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, end up in this kind of position and on the cover of Time Magazine? Will someone please explain to the young people what Time Magazine is? (laughs) Um, How did he achieve that? He earned it. He went on CNN Town Hall, had an absolute star turn, followed it up with several very impressive... Including hyper- the Commonwealth Club. He got a lot of Precisely. attention here. Yeah. And so he, he earned that here in the cover of Time, jokes aside, the same way that Elizabeth Warren earned it. You say, I've got a plan for that enough times. Whether people agree with that plan or not, and it's going to impress them, yeah. and they, both of them ended up with that level of attention because they earned it. 
I won't pick on Kirsten Gillibrand because I think she's a very admirable uh, person. I, in fact, no one normal has seen it, but she's got a really, really impressive position on campaign finance reform, which I'd encourage you to check out on her website. As smart as she is and as accomplished as she's been in the Senate, she has not yet earned that stature yet the way a Buttigieg or a Warren has. And it doesn't mean that she's a bad person. It just means that she hasn't yet found an opportunity to seize mm-hmm. The same mm-hmm. way that they have. And he did the Fox News uh, uh, town hall yeah. recently. He, uh, another yeah. thing. Which ended with a uh, standing ovation. Standing ovation, which yeah. is incredible. So, I mean, I, why more of these Democratic candidates, including Kamala Harris, don't take that route? I have to say, on the on the women candidates, too, this is one other thing to watch, and particularly with Kamala. Um how much are they, they have now been sort of relegated to, are you going to be the VP for Joe oh, Biden? No. And uh, there is a sexism there. But at the same time, it's been pointed out, watch how much or how little Kamala Harris criticizes Joe Biden, because a lot of people on the Democratic side say that would be the 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 choice for Joe Biden. He, yeah. She checks a lot of boxes for him, a woman, a woman of color. Uh, you know, I, 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 she Just could end up as left, the VP. Yeah. yeah. And so whether or not she criticizes him, will you know, how, or, and how much at this convention and elsewhere? Yeah. I, this, might, this might be unpopular to say, but I think the dynamic that you're talking about, Carla, has more to do with poll numbers than chromosomes. People are asking Cory Booker if he would want to be a running mate. If anybody were to ask John Hickenlooper questions, they would ask him if he wanted to be a running mate or mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. cabinet or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's asking Elizabeth Warren if she's going to be someone's running mate because she's running yeah. as a top tier candidate. Yeah. I, so I really think that has more to do with standing in the race than it does gender. But I'd offer you this. Think about this for a second. This is the sixth consecutive presidential election in which a woman has run for president. So... That itself is no longer as remarkable as it once was. That said, this is the first time that women have ever run against each other for president. Good point. Even in 2016, when Carly Fiorina was running on one side and Hillary Clinton was running on the other, they never ran and had a chance to run against each other. They are always the only woman in the race. And I think what's going to be fascinating about this, about this campaign, is it'll allow us to break out of a lot of the conventional wisdom about female candidates. Because I think what we've done for the last five years or so is taken everything we know about Hillary Clinton and said, well, that's what happens with female candidates. And I don't know you can say that about Hillary Clinton any more than you could have said that about Michelle Bachman or Elizabeth mm-hmm. Dole. And this year, by virtue of several different women running credible campaigns for president, I think we'll get a much better sense going forward of what a female leader's strengths and weaknesses are in this context than we've seen before. Yeah. Um, briefly before we move on, uh, someone in the audience writes, JFK was a Catholic, Mayor Pete has a husband, neither was a problem to them. I would, as someone who's native uh, from Wisconsin, the upper Midwest, not too far from where uh, Pete Buttigieg is a mayor, um, the fact that he is a family man a Christian, not afraid of talking about it, but also not in your face about it. That goes down well up there. No, it's it's interesting. And one of the things I asked him when when he was here in San Francisco was, look, as many Democrats, many Democrats like you, they they like what you have to say, but is it still a bridge too far for uh, many Democrats to believe a gay married man could be president? And his answer was, you know, I was reelected in Indiana when Mike Pence uh, was governor with 80% of the vote. Of course, yes, yeah, South Bend, Indiana. But the fact is, maybe we're getting to a place where, uh, you know. Well, uh, th- th- this is not me saying yeah. that Mayor Buttigieg will not be elected president in 2020. Because as those of you have heard me talk before, 
know that I gave up on making political predictions two and a half years ago for only the best <laughs> yeah, of reasons. Right. But while I think the point about, Senator, about John F. Kennedy is the right one, it's worth remembering that Al Smith ran for president before John F. Kennedy did that Jesse Jackson and Carol Mosley Braun ran for president before Barack Obama did. And that's not to say that Mayor Buttigieg will not be elected. Yeah. And certainly public attitudes on, gen, on, um, on marriage equality and other LGBTQ issues have progressed much more rapidly than most social and cultural issues over the years. But if he does fall short, if he continues to run a campaign of this nature, that should not be seen as a failure, but rather a tremendous step forward that might not be culminated in 2020 any more than Al Smith's campaign exactly 100 years ago culminated in success. But it is worth noting that sometimes these things do take a little bit of time. Well, briefly, before we move on to our next topic, someone asks, who will be the first five or six candidates to drop out? For who the first couple you think will be drop out? Uh, first five or six. Um, uh, just I, I a think, couple. Who, who are the first well, couple? Well, I mean, I think, I think Eric's fall is kind of interesting because I, 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 you know, he's speaking here next month, by the way. I, I, there's been a lot written about will he, will he hold on to his seat. Now there's people even starting to run for his seat. I really don't believe he's going to give that seat up. I, I don't think he's going to give it up. I think, he, I think eventually he will drop out. But okay. that's, you know, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of the minor. I think Gillibrand is another example of somebody who might drop out. She doesn't have at least the last time I checked, no endorsements from anyone in her own state, which I think is a telling factor. The real, this is mean, but I can't think of another word at the moment. The real bottom feeders don't have (laughs) a reason to drop out. It's fun. You get to go to Iowa, New Hampshire, and people talk to you, and they stick microphones in your faces, and you get to pretend that you might be president someday. So you've got nothing to lose. You just stick with it. Kristen Gillibrand, who if she does not find that moment we were talking about a little bit earlier, if she does not find that moment, she still has a really uh, potentially very impressive political future. And saving that might encourage her. Yeah, yeah, I think think what what Donald Trump did is make this into a marketing opportunity. Essentially, it's a branding opportunity. And that's why I think you have... The Some other, of these folks who might never have gotten in otherwise. The, other, the others I'd watch very carefully, we'll call it the Schumer primary. Chuck Schumer wants the Senate back and he wants it badly. And it'd be a lot easier if Beto O'Rourke was running for Senate in Texas and if Steve Bullock was running for right. Senate in Montana and a couple of others. So unlike people who continue to run because it's fun, for those who live in states with a Republican senator up for re-election, there's going to be extraordinary pressure on them to rethink it. So I suspect those yeah. might be the ones yeah. who go yeah. first. Okay, very good. President Donald Trump announced that he plans to cancel $1 billion in funds for California's high-speed rail tr- project, which was recently truncated by a surprise decision by California Governor Gavin Newsom. Dan, California is suing to stop the loss of that money. Do they have a case or is it a lost cause? You know, in, in, in most of these disputes, I can find someone to root for. <laughs> <laughs> This, th- th- this one is a lot tougher. Um, first of all, I think like, like most people, I love the idea of a high-speed rail. I love the idea of what many of us voted for a decade ago, a $9 billion expenditure that would whisk us from San Diego to the Bay Area and back two hours and 45 minutes each way. To be fair to the federal government, that's not what 
the Newsom administration is now working toward. The governor himself created a little bit of confusion about this in his State of the State address when he said there was, quote, no path to that kind of high-speed rail. And many people, myself included, took that to mean that he thought there was no path to that kind of high-speed rail. <laughs> um, he, he's backtracked on it somewhat and said, we're going to build the Central Valley leg first and then someday finish the rest. Someday when I'm so if, out of government. So if, 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 if I were his lender, whether the federal government or just somebody much wealthier than I'll ever be, to say, hey, wait, I gave you a few billion dollars for a Southern California to Northern California rail, that's not what you're building. Give me my money back, and then let's start a new negotiation about whether the federal government should give you some money for a Central Valley rail. And I'd hope, particularly with uh, a House Speaker and a, a minority leader in the House who are from California, there would be some funds for a shorter, more purposeful rail from you know, Bakersfield to Merced. Mm -hmm. But I think it is within the rights, but I think it is with, that's where it's actually going. But I think it is within the rights of the federal government to say, look, we gave you money for one thing. And just because you're still calling it high speed rail doesn't mean that you're entitled for it. All that said, as is the case with so many things, um, you know, I think the, here's controversy. I think the U.S. embassy in Israel ought to be in Jerusalem. But like so many <laughs> other things, whether it's an embassy or high speed rail, the way the administration has handled it, a delicate situation makes it awfully tough to root for them, too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, but I have to say, I mean, I think in some respects, Gavin Newsom brought this on himself uh, because he gave an opening to President Trump when he delivered the state of the state address and said there was no plan. And uh, the headlines followed him. And now uh, the state is saying this is in retribution. Uh, for the for the state of resistance, uh, Gavin Newsom did have a little bit of a victory this week in that he's gotten the federal government to agree not to spend that almost billion dollars on other projects, at least to put a hold on it. Uh, but the fact is, this is going to be in, in litigation, uh, and he, I think, has nobody else to blame for throwing, put, you know, putting the red flag in front of the bull here. But again, the, the question is blame, and it goes back to the yeah. point that you made a moment ago. No day is a better day for Gavin Newsom than when he gets to say something mean about Donald Trump. <laughs> Except maybe a day when Donald Trump says something mean about Gavin Newsom. Either way, it can galvanize his support in California like nothing else. Yeah. And losing a billion dollars for a train might not be that big a deal compared to the fact that you got to have another fight like this <laughs> with the president exactly. of, the, of the United exactly. States. Well, another decision the governor made recently was to announce $1 billion to address homeless issues in the state. And I wanted to put this in the context of an article that's kind of gone virally lately from the Washington Post. Uh, it was by a writer whose name I apologize. I don't remember off yeah, the top of my head, but I mean, it was kind of one in the, and you've probably seen a, these this like genre of writers about just how horrible San Francisco is to live in. It's a total hellhole. It's all gone downhill. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah, no, there, there's just been a spate yeah. of these stories. Right. It's the cloud living people. And then you have the Morlocks down below. Yeah. yeah. Um, and not just, not just San Francisco, California in general, yeah. terrible, terrible place to live. I, okay, fine. You know, as, as we were talking, saying, yeah, it's terrible to get up every morning to a crayon blue sky, et cetera. And, you know, uh, those of us who live in California and have been here for a long time uh, know there's challenges here, but at the same time. I mean, really, come on. But, but the, <laughs> I mean, but, but the fact is that this homeless issue is, is the most visible 
aspect, and that's the one that all of these stories uh, concentrate on, the, this epidemic of homelessness. And uh, I was in um, at, at Gavin Newsom's event in Oakland this week, uh, and he was with Libby Schaft announcing this new plan, this idea to find the best practices around the state. He knows if he doesn't solve this problem, there's two things he's got to solve, and <laughs> if he can, in four years, which is homelessness and the housing issue. Those are the top of mind of people. And this homeless issue is so visible in every major city. Uh, and people who come here from other states are shocked. There's many reasons for it. It's not just a California problem. But the fact is there's, there's a whole generation of problems that have built up over the years, including evictions of people. It, you know, when, when we had public housing projects, people didn't get evicted as much as they are now. Uh, and, and the fact is, in Section 8 housing, there has been an epidemic of evictions. And, and the, the, the author of a book called Eviction, uh, who won the Pulitzer Prize two years ago, uh, laid this all out. The fact is that particularly single black women are the ones who are most affected by this. And once you're evicted from a Section 8 uh, apartment for, say, calling 911 or calling a plumber, which is what is happening, um, getting back into housing is almost impossible and there's no legal help. Well, Newsom has put millions of dollars now into legal help for, to stop evictions, which I think is a, a really important thing. But he's now got a uh, task, Daryl Steinberg, who's the mayor of uh, Sacramento, and Mark Ridley Thomas from uh, Los Angeles, to go around the state and find best practices that are going on. And in Oakland, he held this news conference at a place where, uh, you know, people come in, they get they have caseworkers who work with them for four or five months, and then they are given transitional permanent housing. And they found that I think they said 80% of these people never return to the streets. You've got to find some kind of programs like that. We know these navigation centers and other places are, just are not, a lot of times, just not doing it. The statistic I saw, and I, I, I'm open to anyone who has better statistics on it, but that it was that the navigation center's success rate are, uh, is 14%. Yeah. I mean, we know city, are these cities have spent millions and millions of dollars on this and no answer. And the problem's getting worse. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now back to our program. There's really three aspects of this challenge. The first is mental health, and that yeah. is a conversation for another day when there's time and space for it. Second is support and services for the homeless, and that's a conversation I think you were appropriately right. touching on. The third is increasing the available housing supply. Cool. And I'll tell you, for, on one hand, I, I, I give Governor Newsom tremendous credit on this front, because Jerry Brown, for all his other accomplishments as governor, was fatalistic almost to the point of dismissive when it came to the question of increasing the housing supply in California. He didn't think the state either could or would uh, be able to make the kind of difference that is necessary. So give Newsom big credit for being willing to take this on in a way that has not been done here in, in, in quite some time. That said, this week, uh, Senator Scott Weiner uh, had a seminal bill, and it was not a perfect bill, 
Um, it certainly had flaws. But it was the most ambitious bill, Senate Bill 50, which would have created a much larger supply of affordable housing, particularly near transit stops and job centers. After the bill, uh, after the bill died, Governor Newsom said he was disappointed, which is good, but he did not formally endorse the bill before he was disappointed by its lack of passage. And it's worth assuming that if a governor, particularly a very popular governor, does endorse a bill, perhaps it increases the chances of passage and lessens the possibility of disappointment. The real challenge for Newsom, whether it's on homelessness, whether it's on health care, you name the issue, at some point soon, Gavin Newsom needs to slay a dragon. The legislature, the legislators were scared of Jerry Brown. He was sort of the get-off-my-lawn governor, and they were terrified <laughs> of him. If, if, their ball, if their ball rolled into his yard, they didn't want any part of it. They're still deciding what to make of Newsom. And he made, uh, I think, a very impressive case in his, op in his opening weeks in the state of the state, in his budget, very serious about maintaining reserves. But all of a sudden, now you see the legislators starting to nibble at him. They pushed back against his water tax. This SB 50 housing bill went away. They're beginning to put more money into programs that he had wanted to save in the budget reserves. And I think at a certain point in the not too distant future, he's going to have to take a hostage or you know, slay mm -hmm. a dragon, whatever the metaphor is, to let the legislature know that when something is really important to him, he's willing to engage that forcefully on it. And as soon as he does that on one issue, I think there'll be a lot more deferential on a, a, lot, of other, a lot of other fronts too. Briefly, uh, before we move on, so the SB 50 has basically been, the, the committee chair said, you know, it's dead for this year. You can yeah. bring it up next year. Scott Wiener has said he's going to keep trying even this year. Is it, what do you think the prospects are that we'll see? There are efforts to try and revive it. And um, uh, I think uh, uh, Tony Atkins in the Senate has said, uh, well, you know, this, was not, this is not a one-size-fits-all issue. She's, t she's gotten tremendous pressure for also not standing up for this bill. I think you have to give him credit for coming and for trying uh, a, a very creative uh, approach to a problem that nobody really wants to deal with. I mean, he's not saying that, they, that San Francisco is going to turn into Hong Kong, but you're talking about four and five story buildings in a city where over 70 percent is is uh, zoned for single family housing. It's a hard this is a very hard lift in every community. I think he's going to come back at it. Uh, but whether it's going to be this year, I think most people don't give it a lot of chance to come back uh, soon. I, I think that's right. Going back to our conversation about presidential breakthroughs, think of SB 50 as the L. Smith of housing legislation <laughs> yeah. in, uh, in California, yeah. Yeah. setting the groundwork for a breakthrough rather than being the yeah. breakthrough itself. The real challenge for the Democrats on this one is the fiercest opposition, not surprisingly, comes from suburbs. And while the suburbs were once battlegrounds between Democrats and Republicans, the suburban rings in the Bay Area outside of Los Angeles, outside of San Diego, have become increasingly, increasingly Democrat. And offending economically successful, socially progressive, wealthy suburbanites is not something most leading Democrats are eager to do. Mm -hmm. So there's going to have yeah. to be compromised legislation. Getting it done yeah. in the next couple months yeah. is going to be tough. Yeah. Okay. Well, our next topic... So Donald Trump stormed out of a meeting earlier today with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, um, allegedly upset with Pelosi because she had said he is engaged in a cover-up. Then, sounding nothing like someone who's engaging in a cover-up, 
He uh, went and told reporters that former FBI acting director Andrew McCabe, former FBI director James Comey, and a former Justice Department official were guilty of treason, a crime punishable by death, by the way. (laughs) So um, this is what we're going to talk about for the next six hours. (laughs) (laughs) Might want to... We'll have sleeping bags and overnight stuff. No, uh, yeah, we, we've done this so many times over the past couple of years where I brought up one of these issues and just kind of like, never thought we'd see this. Yeah, no, Carla. I mean, wait, wait, this is one of those where, you know, I've watched a lot of presidential press conferences over the years. This was probably the, one of the most jaw-dropping ones I've seen for him to, and it, just dramatized how much Nancy Pelosi is getting to him. I mean, I mean, uh, Christine Pelosi, uh, who's her daughter, uh, you know, she's very active here in San Francisco, has said many times on Twitter, like, don't mess with mama. And it's like, <laughs> Donald, <laughs> take her advice. Because it, he, I mean, he got up there and called her crazy Nancy, said she didn't understand the trade bills, that she's losing it. Um, essentially, you know, basically called her mentally ill and disintegrating in front of our eyes. Just every kind of every insults all over the place. It was amazing to watch, but it was an illustration of. Uh, I mean, he's really freaking out. I think it looked. It looked to me like maybe maybe these issues. Uh, you know, Maxine Waters uh, in the finance committee. Uh, getting a hold of Deutsche Bank and uh, right and Capital yeah. One uh, um, uh, financial figures, then the tax uh, uh, information. A federal judge decided uh, with, with basically the Democrats on that uh, stuff is closing in on him on the financial stuff, and and she just played she just as she did in that in that um, January uh, meeting with him and Schumer on the shutdown, where she came out you know, a winner there. He has been making the argument that the Democrats have been doing nothing because they're investigating him. And then he basically said, I'm going on strike until you stop these, these investigations, which I mean, now he has no one to blame for nothing getting done. My, my, my favorite Pelosi moment this so far this year is neither yesterday's or the January uh, summit meetings, but rather the State of the Union address with the seal clap. <laughs> um, she really does know how to how to get under his skin. And the best description I've heard of of the president's news conference is it said it was a it, it was his Twitter account come to life. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, yes. And that the sort of the, the raging id venting that he normally does on social media. Was done in was it was done in person. All that said, there's an uh, emerging consensus, at least among the people who I read closest and respect the most, that he Trump knows what he's doing on this, and that he very specifically has decided that he's going to do everything he can to goad the Democrats into impeaching him, because he knows that he's not going to persuade many swing voters to support him. His ticket to re-election, even more so than 2016, is to motivate his base to the highest level possible. And looking at the Clinton impeachment from the late 20th century as an antecedent, and knowing that he has a much more fervent base in his party than Clinton did in his, he believes if by refusing to provide witnesses, refusing to provide documents, this kind of, mm-hmm. you know, th- this kind of behavior, if he can goad the Democrats into impeaching him, that that will serve to motivate his most loyal supporters much more than anything else he could possibly do himself. If you look at the question of impeachment from a pure legal standpoint, 
there's a number of reasons now where it actually would provide a legal advantage to House Democrats. It helped them be able to get, get, get documents. So it helped them in other ways. So legally, it's beginning to make more and more sense. Politically, Trump wants it more and more. And while we're singing Pelosi's praises, let's take a moment to watch the way she has been exquisitely working her own Democratic yes, caucus. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Including the most virulent supporters of impeachment. Because I don't think, and I'd be interested in your thought, Carla, I don't think the speaker is against impeaching Donald Trump. I think she's smart enough to understand that if the House does it, it has to do, it has to be in reaction to a whole series of actions or non-actions right. that will move a lot of the voters who currently don't think it's a good idea and to rush into it now when public opinion is so split. Right. I, 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 I completely agree with you there. And I think uh, that's one other aspect of this crazy news conference today. Uh, you know, she, in the last couple of days, has been wrestling with her own caucus. About 30 of them are, are strongly supportive of impeachment. After today, you know, he's calling her crazy Nancy, et cetera. Uh, they're they're going to be all totally behind her. Uh, so she, once again, controls the chessboard well, there. But look at that. Yeah. Right now, there are roughly 30 Democrats uh, who in the House who support impeachment. Last year at this time, there were two. I'm not very good at math. <laughs> right. But if you follow that trajectory, there are going to be thousands of House Democrats in favor of impeachment by this time next year. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Nancy Pelosi has her eye on the, I mean, so the the progressive wing, the, those candidates, Alexandria yeah, Ocasio-Cortez okay, right. and others have been very vocal and it's time, you know, we got elected, we, we, you know, the party needs to start doing what we say. But of course, more moderate Democrats flipped seats in the last election right. than right. these, you know, progressives who got elected in safe seats. So Pelosi is knowing that if she loses those moderate seats, That's right. she loses her speaker. Yeah, they, and there's several of them in California. She's got to protect people like Katie Hill, Katie Porter, and so forth. They, they're in, they're in uh, seats that are very dangerous for them. Uh, but I, I have to think that a lot of these impeachment advocates like Ocasio-Cortez, watching what happened today with the Rose Garden and Trump, you know, going insane on Pelosi like he did, um, are going to stand behind her and like, okay, let's calm, let's 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 take a pass, let's chill out here. And that's exactly right. She's yeah. not worried about her district here. She's worried about the swing districts. And I think that's one of the reasons she treats Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with such disdain. Um, it's not even disguised anymore. She treats Ocasio-Cortez the way we used to treat our pledges in my fraternity back in the day. She's just <laughs> mean to her. And... I think she's 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 smart enough that I don't believe she's doing that just gratuitously, but is trying to send a measure to other send a message to other House progressives saying it's not about my districts. It's not about it's not about the Bronx. It's about the swing districts that we just won that yeah, we got to yeah, keep. Yeah. Someone in the audience asks, uh, will Californians realize that immigration will win the 2020 election for Donald Trump? I don't know on that. I mean, when we have headlines like six children, uh, migrant children have died in, um, in federal custody, uh, Democrats are just starting to, to grab that and say, this cannot go on. The, there have been, uh, in the last couple of weeks, uh, stories showing children you know, sleeping, and migrant children sleeping in these deplorable conditions. 
it really, Trump has not had to answer for this question. And there's, and there's one other question that I just keep wondering, when is some reporter going to ask him about, which is the fact that the, the Washington Post investigations about the many undocumented immigrants who work at his oh, own yeah, properties. Yeah. Uh, he has never been asked about that. And, and yet, even as he today talked again about the, the wall and uh, it being built and so forth, and de- Democrats denied him funding when it came to this disaster bill on that. But the fact is that some of the issues related to the treatment of, of refugees and asylum seekers here have yet to be really fully investigated. And I think that issue, uh, you know, I agree that the, divi- the issue of immigration, he has played that one and it is very divisive. But I think many Americans are appalled by the idea of these children dying in federal custody, and um, he hasn't been held to account on. I, I, I'm not as, as certain on this one as you are. I don't know the answer to the audience member's question, but I think it's a really smart question to ask. This goes back to something we said earlier. Neither party right now is really spending a lot of time talking to swing voters. Yeah. At this point in our history, winning elections has become about base motivation much more than persuading the voters in the middle. And you're right. Stories about those poor children motivate a lot of voters. Stories about an undocumented immigrant who commits a horrible crime motivate others. And so I think like abortion, I know we're going to talk about that also, should there be time, I'd suggest to you that issues like immigration and abortion, no one changes their mind. I'm trying to remember the last time I saw someone say, when I've been involved in discussion with them about either of those issues, for them to say, wait a minute, Dan, you're right. I've been wrong all these years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was lost and now I'm found. The scales have fallen from my eyes. Thank you so much for helping me see the light. I'm not, I'm not maligning or making light of people with heartfelt opinions on either side of those issues. Just saying they're issues that tend to motivate people for their preferred candidate or preferred party rather than persuading. And Trump, just yeah. like on impeachment, understands that talking about this issue may motivate the Democrat space. But he's hoping he's gambling. Yeah. That'll motivate his base more. So I don't don't disagree with you, Carla. I'm just not as confident because I think it's a smart question that the the individual raised. Well, it does get us to the issue about the states that have been passing some very strict uh, abortion laws, curbing it, uh, almost eliminating it, except in very, very rare circumstances. Uh, So it was the Alabama bill that that I guess has been the the most restrictive so far. And you've had a number of Republicans um, including Pat Robertson, say, no, 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 that's too far. Not meaning, you know, they've, they've changed their mind on abortion, but meaning the point of this is to get a bill to get to the U.S. Supreme Court right, that right. the Supreme Court will use to overturn Roe v. Wade. And if you send something that's too extreme, they're not going to, even, even this conservative court will not go for it. So this is a political roundtable, so we're not actually here to debate abortion. Yeah. But the, the, the politics of it, let's talk about, right. and that is, both parties obviously think this is, again, going to the whole base thing, that this will generate their you know, enthusiasm and get out the vote of their base. Who do you think's right? I mean, this is an issue that um, I think has, has really fired up women voters and will fire up women voters. Um, and, and it's one of those things, you know, you saw the Women's March. Um, that was th- this issue of defunding Planned Parenthood uh, and now the uh, Alabama abortion law is something that could really backfire. Uh, Even Trump, as you said, has said this is 
too extreme of a law. You know, I've been covering, um, I, I was telling you, uh, NARAL, the, uh, a, a, a very well-known uh, abortion rights, reproductive rights group, has had annual events here in San Francisco. Thousands of women turn out to these things. And for many years, uh, you know, the idea that um, Roe v. Wade would be overturned, you know, was talked about, but never seriously. But now, women, and many women, at least in my generation, have never thought this would seriously happen, right? Because uh, 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 this has just been the law of the land. But now, it, with that law, it was kind of a wake-up call to a lot of, not just women voters, but I think people in the middle of the spectrum. Um, and I think polls show a lot, most people are in the middle of the spectrum on this. Well, I th- th- this creates a real challenge for pro-life advocates, because toward Carla's last point, primarily because of advances in technology, the pro-life movement has been making very gradual progress in recent years. Voters you know, using this technology, sometimes changing their minds, sometimes supporting parental consent laws, sometimes talking about an earlier threshold at which abortion would be legal. So for the last many years, there's been a very slow, gradual movement in the pro-life direction, not in the, on the broader question of whether abortion should be illegal or not, but these, for lack of a better term, sort of sub-issues. And this reverses that, because instead of a very s- slow, very gradual step toward an ultimate goal, this is a much more dramatic, much more aggressive one that's taken the likes of the RNC chair, the Republican congressional leaders, and Reverend Robertson to say, to say too far. Married women decide elections in America. And this is the kind of thing, as Carla correctly pointed out, that could serve as a tremendous motivating force for female voters in the 2020 election. Uh, should we have time? And John Aldefruity on this, we can talk a little bit about why married women are the I, most I, important people yeah. in America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So you're all familiar with the gender gap, of course. Women tend to vote Democratic much more. Men tend to vote Republican much more. There's also an equally pronounced marriage gap. Married people tend to vote much more heavily Republican. Single people nationally tend to vote much more heavily Democrat. So what you've got then, you've got four basic quadrants. Way over here on the Democratic side, the most reliable Democratic voters are single women. One of my best friends is a single Republican man. He can't date in even numbered years because there are no single women who <laughs> go out with him. Um, mar- married, married men, not here in the city, but nationally, tend to be the most reliable portion of, of the Republican base. Single men, and I was one, one for many years, I don't follow politics, we watch sports, we play Xbox, you know, we watch late <laughs> yeah. night cable things. Um, all jokes aside, single men are less attentive to politics than these other four cohorts, those, the, the three cohorts, and what that leaves you is married women. So for the married women in the audience, when you tell your spouse, when you tell your kids that you're the most important person in the world, you can say, I heard it at Commonwealth Club on Thursday night. In fact, I am the most important person in the world. And so when married women vote issues that are commonly associated with marital status, primarily economic and criminal justice issues, they tend to vote for Republican candidates. When they vote on issues that are commonly and somewhat retro associated with gender characteristics, primarily cultural and social and environmental issues, they're more likely to vote Democratic. And moving this issue up onto the top tier, as Carlo was describing, could serve as a very powerful motivator for those married women next November. Yeah. Well, on a very local level, um, San Francisco's public defender, Jeff Adachi, died a while ago, uh, suddenly, unexpectedly. And um, a while later, a police 
report on the death came out that was talking about the uh, conditions and the situation in which he was he he was found dead. Very recently, there was a police raid, and and I guess police and the FBI raided the home of a of a freelance journalist who had I guess had a copy of the report and was selling it yeah. to yeah. TV stations. Interestingly, I mean, Kamala Harris, uh, Nancy Pelosi, uh, to a lesser extent, Mayor London Breed have uh, criticized the raid, though London Breed also took pains to yeah, point out yeah. that it was it was at, at a court order and it was legal and, and therefore appropriate. There are a lot of issues involved here. The, you know, the, the public official, the the uh, right. journalist, uh, the, you know, the police and both in the raid and whatever report was leaked and that kind of thing. Carla, you're a journalist. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, th- this is the story that made national news because uh, here you have uh, the most liberal city in America and police busting down the door of a journalist and taking him, him away in handcuffs and seizing all his equipment. And yet, I think for m- the most part, San Francisco supervisors were pretty much silent on it. Uh, I didn't respond to comment on it. Even Mayor London Breed was sort of supportive of this idea. If this had happened, I have to say, you know, it's been noted, if this had happened in Washington to a Trump official, you know, the, the, uh, I think we have a whole different reaction here in terms of how the, how the press would react and how the, how the government officials would react. It, there are a lot of complicated factors, as you said. There, the, the journalist involved got a hold of a police report that was not, that did not shine a good light on Jeff Adachi, who was a, who was a uh, in, in many respects, a, a well-loved figure here, yeah. but who also died under some very questionable circumstances involving drugs, alcohol, etc. cetera. Uh, so, but this goes right to press freedom. We're talking about an era in which the president himself keeps calling uh, the media the enemy of the people. And in San Francisco, they're taking away a reporter in handcuffs for essentially, uh, uh, I mean, first of all, California has a shield law. Apparently the, the judge involved didn't know that or didn't care. <laughs> and uh, it, it wasn't the reporter who, who broke the law in getting, uh, getting leaked information. We get leaked information all the time. They were trying to get to his source. He didn't want to reveal the source. Why more public officials here in San Francisco didn't express outrage to me is a, a shame, first of all. And I think we need more answers as to how this happened and whether it suggests that not just in Washington uh, or is there attack on free press, but also here in San Francisco. That's right. First of all, Trump is going to use this. And he's going to use this to his benefit. The next time, or maybe not the next time, but soon, when he is criticized for his treatment of the press and using words like any of the people, enemy of the people and fake news and that sort of thing, he's going to say, hey, look what they did in liberal San Francisco. I might call them names, but I don't bust down their doors and do all these things. So he, mark my words, he is going to make an issue out of this uh, at the earliest or best opportunity. Second, I think more broadly, look, Thomas Jefferson once said, given the choice between a government without a free press or a free press without a government, I would not hesitate to choose the latter. And, you know, not, not to preach here, and I apologize if it comes across this way. But look, the First Amendment's hard. The First Amendment's really, really hard. It's easy to defend the First Amendment rights of someone with whom you agree. It's really, really hard to stand there and grit your teeth to let someone who speaks up on behalf of something that you, dis- dis- that you disdain, that you despise, because they have a First Amendment right to say it. 
I grew up in the Midwest, not too far from where John did in Wisconsin, which is not only close to Indiana, but it's close to Skokie, Illinois. Um, and all of you are familiar with the landmark case in Skokie, Illinois. My, I will tell you this, my, my grandparents, I was, I was young, I was still a kid. My grandparents took me to Skokie because they wanted me to see it. They wanted me to see even people standing up for things that we despised, exercising a right to free speech that we don't take away from people. That's just not what we do. And for those who don't remember that case, this yeah. was a matter where neo-Nazis wanted to march through right. Skokie, Illinois, Skokie being a heavily Jewish suburb of Chicago. And they were, as uh, the Supreme Court allowed them to march because they had the First Amendment, First Amendment rights to even say horrible, hateful things. And while I'm not a native of San Francisco, I have followed this story uh, up here uh, very, very, as, as closely as I can. Although I must admit, Carla, I cannot make heads or tails of Mayor Breed's statement on this. I have no yeah, idea what no. she thinks about this as much as I try. Yeah. Um, but what it appears from a distance is deciding that the First Amendment rights that a free press enjoys only go as far as when it causes political inconvenience. And I hope once some understandably impassioned, understandably distraught political and civic and community leaders under, have a chance to take their breath, catch their breath and take a step back, that they'll say, I might have reacted badly in those first days. But ultimately, we have to do everything we can to protect the free press, even if they are pursuing stories that we would rather that they did not. Right. Okay. Someone in the audience asks about, uh, you mentioned Representative Katie Porter from California, who uh, quizzed Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson, <laughs> asked him if he knew what REO was. He thought she said Oreo. <laughs> I'm just glad he didn't hear REO in response, Speedwagon. Um, you have to be a certain yeah, generation, yeah, yeah. I guess, to get that one. <laughs> another exactly. Midwestern. Exactly. Band. But oh, what did you think about it? I actually, I'll be honest, I had a mixed reaction to that. And one, I know housing policy, because that used to be what I used to report on, so I knew what REO was, um, is. Um, I know a lot about HUD and all that kind of stuff. And he does not come across as being an expert on it. Let's just say that. Yeah. At the same time, it seems, you know, she, she did this and immediately she was pushing out the video of it and kind of running a victory lap. Like, yeah. I've just shown how stupid this person is. Yeah. And I'm just thinking that if that were flipped around and, and that were a Republican doing that to a Democrat. Well, know, I, I think in the, in the age of social media, that's where we're at. That's how that's that. That is the way uh, elected officials deliver their message. And she got a tremendous amount of attention. And you're right. You know, as brilliant as a neurosurgeon as Ben Carson is, it's very clear he doesn't know some of the basics of his job. And um, and I and I think that that. That was of such a visual, you know, she's in a very tough seat down there. She's, she's got to work it. She's got to do everything she can to get her constituents to know. And, and this is where we're at. Social media is how they do it. Yeah, uh, but, but I'd say this. Members of Congress of both parties have used committee hearings to embarrass um, opposing witnesses for, for decades, for generations. That's, for better or worse, why the, uh, one reason why those committee hearings take place to expose either a lack of knowledge or the indefensibility mm -hmm. of uh, an individual's position. That said, I think the member of Congress comes off much better herself or himself when they do it on a matter of substance. So Representative Porter earlier this year was questioning Janie, Jamie Dimon, the finance industry leader, and pressed him just as hard on questions of compensation for his own employees. I don't think that he was any more or less embarrassed than the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development was this week. 
But I think Porter came out of it looking much better because she focused that attention and created that confrontation on a matter of policy rather than personality. One last question from the audience, and this is really back to our Trump discussion. Who was the last candidate to win the presidency during a booming economy? I mean, the Democrat, if Trump didn't have so many probably self-created problems, he probably would be sailing to re-election. Booming economy, incumbent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sorry, who was the last president who did not win re-election during a booming well, who, economy? Who, let's say, who was, I think they're asking, who was the last challenger oh, to beat an incumbent during, during a, a booming, booming economy? economy? Hmm. We could make this the first quiz question. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I know. But I, I think the point certainly is that yeah, no. like you got to well, put, you know, with all the other... With all the other things you, we were talking about earlier about yeah. his willingness, he's it's, very it's, wily. For, for, and, and we've already seen Joe Biden sort of try to take credit for the booming economy I'll, too. I'll take right? the I'll okay. take the I'll, I'll take the question and answer it in a somewhat unfair way. In fact, by the time of the 1992 election, the U.S. economy had begun to recover very considerably, but George W. George H. W. Bush was still defeated for re- re-election. The question of a of a, of a thriving as opposed but, to yeah. a recovering economy. Yeah. Look, there were no shortage of Republicans who believe that Donald Trump's surest path to re-election would be to go to Mar-a-Logo, take away his Twitter account, and just sit there for the next 18 months and not say anything in public and just let the economy continue upward, and he would almost certainly be re-elected. <laughs> I think the questioner's yeah. point is, <laughs> is, is, is the same. <laughs> okay, well, on that note, let's go to our news quiz. I'll ask a question. If you think you know the answer, raise your hand. Only after I call on you, please raise your hand. Otherwise, we have multiple people answering and someone doesn't get chocolate. Hey. So, hey, John. Yes. Lyndon Johnson didn't lose, but he withdrew, even though the American economy in the late 60s was very strong. True. It was, okay. In fact, the economy right, was red right. hot. Yeah, then, you know. that's a good point. Yeah. Um, first question. What country's leader held what was described as the most expensive dinner in the country, at which guests paid $173,000 each to attend? Did anyone see the story? I'll give you a hint. It's in Africa. Mm, that was the Biden fundraiser, right? No. <laughs> Nobody saw that one? Oh. Okay. It was Ethiopia, actually. It was a fundraiser to... Ethiopia? Ethiopia. Well, these were businessmen and women, and they were paying money. The money went to uh, revitalize a part of the capital city. So, went to a good cause. Right. (laughs) Well, speaking of money, with a monthly average of $6,526, San Francisco now has the nation's highest what? Sir? No, no, but good question. Way in back. That's correct. That is correct. Yeah. That is the average monthly salary in San Francisco. Yes. San Francisco knocked off Zurich, by the way. Did it? Yes. For highest wow. average salary, right. Okay. So the so-called American Taliban has left federal prison as of today. What is his name? Oh. Over there, sir? That's right. John Walker Lind. From Marin County. <laughs> Gentleman over here in the front row in the middle. Yes. Who, and he's not returning immediately to yes. Marin. There's no housing. So we've heard President Trump call Joe Biden Sleepy Joe. Now, who is calling Biden, quote, an imbecile bereft of elementary quality as a human being and a fool of low IQ, unquote, right there in front? North Korea, that is correct. They have the best insults. (laughs) If I ever become president, all I care about is finding out what they're going to call me. Uh, We're unsure if Sarah Palin could really see Russia from her house in Alaska, but this week she might very well have seen Russian what from her home? Oh, Ma'am, that's right. Fighter jets. 
Uh, Russian fighter jets were repeatedly uh, encroaching on U.S. airspace there. Right. And uh, they were met by American fighter jets. <laughs> That's what happens. Um, they found not one, but three wills in the home of what recently deceased uh, singer right there in the second row? Aretha. Aretha Franklin, that is correct. Hmm. If your loved ones die in the state of Washington... <laughs> <laughs> What can you now do to them, sir? Them. You can compost them. Oh. <laughs> Coming soon to Berkeley, I'm sure. Okay, okay. Uh, what former governor was attacked at a sporting event in South Africa? Uh, sir, right there on the edge? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right, yeah. Someone basically tried to drop kick him and yeah. knocked him over, and yeah. he was... They yeah, succeeded. They actually, it's, it's, it's worth looking at his Twitter account of it. I thought he handled it really yeah, yeah, well. He, did, he was saying, look, if you're going you're gonna to share the video, I understand it, but use this video because it doesn't show the idiot. <laughs> Don't give the kicker because it was just some... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So shareholders lost two votes intended to change Amazon's policies toward what controversial technology? In fact, San Francisco doesn't like this technology. Way in back in the red? That's right. Facial recognition technology in particular selling it to police departments. Today, the United States filed, I've seen 17, I've also seen 18, Espionage Act charges against whom way in back, sir? Julian Assange. Now the question, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin is delaying until 2026 or 2028, placing who on the $20 bill? Ma'am, back there in the white? Harriet Tubman, yes. For perhaps the first time in history, people are actually paying attention to elections this weekend for what multinational organization? EU. EU. Sir, right there, I think in the second row? The EU, that's right, the European Parliament elections. We'll have lots more to talk about and, of course, more news quiz questions the next time we meet here. Um, I want to thank our great panel, Dan Schnur and Carla Marinucci. Thanks to all of you here in the room and everyone watching and listening online. Have a great weekend.